This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Inspirational, Informational, and Transparent Aviation Careers Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Dan Wells. You know, Dan was recently named a fellow by the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, and today we're speaking with Dan about his career as a test pilot and hope to inspire you, the listener, to pursue this fascinating career. But what is a test pilot? Well, before we begin, we have a a few announcements. First of all, uh, check out the Scholarships Guide. We have a a few updates. It's uh, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash courses has the Scholarships Guide and also our career coaching, et cetera, out there. But we have updates every single month. It seems like we're adding one scholarship uh, just about every week and sometimes every day. So check that out. It's only $10 for access for a full year. Uh, If you buy it on uh, Amazon, if you buy it through the iBook store, we'll actually give you one year access if you send us your electronic receipt. Because some people just like to have that Amazon book. Problem is with Amazon, they won't update it. So that's why we want to give you access and the most up-to-date scholarships there. Also, another thing, uh, please keep your questions coming uh, and write into us at feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. One of the things I know we're a little bit of a backlog we're still on questions from May of this year, and right now it's October. So if you do have an immediate need, you need to have a question that has to be answered. We do have career coaching. That's at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash coaching. It's really not that expensive. It's $75 for the first hour and $75 an hour after that. Either myself or another one of our coaches will help you out with that immediate need. Maybe it's something you have to make a decision based on your career right now. You have a job offer. You have 10 job offers, which has been happening lately. Uh, we'll, we'll help you out there. We'll also help you make a plan towards your career and your career goal. Whatever it is in aviation, management, engineering, uh, flight attendant, or pilot. I know right now there's such a shortage of pilots, so we're getting most of the folks through that program. Anyway, let's move on with the show. And uh, again, I asked the question, you know, what, what is a test pilot? And, you know, test pilots are actually transliters. You know, they give the engineers intricate feedback about the aircraft while it's under deployment. They often hold advanced degrees in engineering or some related field, providing a foundation for understanding and describing how an aircraft performs under highly specific test conditions. Successful test pilots are like brave statisticians, statisticians, excuse me, it's uh, comfortable, you know, at holding the controls of an airborne machine while formulating the nitty gritty report that leads to its improvement. You know, to discuss the role of test pilot and careers within that field is Dan Wells. Dan is a test pilot for Leonardo on the AW609 tilt row rotor. The AW609 Augusta Westland is slated to become the world's first civil certified tilt rotor to market when it's FA certified in 2019. That's pretty exciting. And uh, to bring on Dan, welcome to the podcast, Dan. And also, congratulations on your recognition as a fellow of the Association of Experimental Test Pilots. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for inviting me also. It's uh, quite an honor, actually. <laughs> well, I, well, we really, it's an honor to have you on. Boy, it's it's something that's so different to most people being a test pilot. A lot of times we look at people and say, you know, that's not something I could do. And it, it just seems so far out. But it's like anything else. Uh, when you realize what needs to be done to get to that point to become a test pilot, 
You know, it, it, people, people are, that are test pilots are people just like you and me. I mean, they're, they're out there. But uh, So, Dan, you, you had your start in aviation, you know, just like any other career. So tell us a little bit about your early career. It wasn't actually being a test pilot, was it? No, actually, I joined the Army to become a pilot. The Army used to run these um, really cool commercials featuring an old AH-1 Cobra. Oh, yeah. And it's <laughs> coming into an LZ, you know, and there's this young guy and this older guy. And uh, the young guy's in the front seat, and I was a young guy. And I thought, you know what? I might be able to do that. And, and uh, <clears throat> But the, the most interesting part, I think, is that the reason I want to become a test pilot was because one time my mom handed me a book and she said, here, read this book. I think you'll like it. And I did. And the book was the right stuff by Tom Wolf. Oh, wow. And that book literally changed my life. And, um, I've, I've always, I've always realized that, you know, reading is really very, very important to your life. You know, I, I tell people all the time, if you're not sure what you want to do in life, you know, read, read articles in magazines and read books and stuff. And one day something's going to hit you in the head and go, holy cow, this is me. So it was a book that really led me to becoming a test pilot. I love your advice. You need to read. You need to go out there and, and find out information. You know, a lot of times we have so much information on the Internet. We have YouTube and that type of thing. And it's another opportunity to find out about different things. But reading is so important. And uh, it, it enables you to just concentrate on that specific topic. And it can be really inspiring. What a wonderful book to start off your career. So you went from that, from reading Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, to getting involved and becoming a, a test pilot. But one of the things that I think we need to kind of clarify, because there are some people that are new to this podcast and new to the aviation world, is you said you're working on a tilt rotor project. So first of all, what is this project you're working on, and, and what is a tilt rotor for those people that don't know what that is? Okay. Well, a tilt rotor is an aircraft that basically um, has wings like an airplane, but it also has rotors like a helicopter. And those rotors, in our case, and in the case of the V-22 Osprey, the rotors are mounted at the wing tips. And they can rotate a full 90 degrees. Actually, they can rotate 95 degrees. So they can go from vertical. So you have this helicopter with side-by-side rotors mounted out at the wing tips, and they're, and they're vertical like a normal um, helicopter would be. And once you get off the ground, the entire engine and transmission and the cells, the entire thing rotates forward through hydraulic power, and as it rotates forward, <clears throat> you begin accelerating, and pretty soon you're flying on the wing. You're no longer a helicopter, and now you're an airplane with just very, very large propellers. So uh, you can basically take off and land vertically, and yet you can cruise at the kind of altitudes and airspeeds of a business category airplane. So there might be some very obvious applications, but in the military world, what would be an application where the tilt rotor would help as opposed to, say, a helicopter? Well, for instance, um, offshore, you know, the, the oil um, rigs are getting far, farther and farther offshore, and it takes a helicopter a long time to get there, and also a helicopter tends to not go over the weather. So, you know, our case, we're a pressurized aircraft, so we can basically fly at 25,000 feet, and also, once we convert into airplane mode, we're doing over 250 knots uh, true airspeed. And so we can get there pretty quick. We can go pretty far. And we, and we can, you know, avoid the weather. 
So it's a pretty reliable um, system of transportation, and yet when we get there, we don't need a runway. We can just land on the helipad at the uh, oil rig. So, so that's one application. And another application is like search and rescue. You know, we can combine, you know, for right now, for instance, in the Coast Guard, they use a fixed wing to do the search, and they use a helicopter to do the rescue. And we can do both. We can go out there and search for the for the uh, victim, and then we can basically, once we find them, we can just stop and pick them up. So we can search at airplane-type speeds, and yet we can stop and pick somebody up, just like a helicopter. Some great different uh, scenarios you gave us, but how about in the civilian world? I don't think, I, I noticed this is a civilian helicopter, mainly it's moving towards that usage in the future. So, gosh, is there? Do you think there's going to be a demand for tilt rotors in the civilian world? Yeah, we we have looked at um, at VIP type flights. We've also looked at corporate flight departments. We had a we had a large company that was willing to give us all of their flight information over the past two or three years. They have a, a fleet of helicopters and airplanes, and they gave us all of their information. And we basically looked at it and we're a, we told them we could do something like 95 or 94% of their missions with one aircraft instead of a fleet. And, and you know how it is. I mean, when you own helicopters and airplanes, you have to have helicopter tools. You have to have helicopter mechanics. You have to have airplane tools. You know, when, when you can consolidate the fleet down to one type of aircraft, you save a lot of money in terms of overhead. And so... Um, you know, I, I think corporate flight departments are looking at us very seriously, the oil and gas industry, the VIP market. Um, and we have some, some foreign customers also um, that are you know, very serious about what we can do. You know, the other, I guess, big elephant in the room is Uber. I know we see it in the news all the time, and uh, especially on YouTube. There's some really cool videos about Uber Air discussing uh, air transportation with Uber. Almost all of it doesn't center around airplanes. It's actually tilt rotors, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot of uh, powered lift type vehicles. So, yeah, they're really looking for aircraft that um, can take off and land vertically and yet go faster than a helicopter. And uh, so, I mean, a helicopter is limited by its forward speed because you've got, you know, one blade that's going its rotational velocity plus the airspeed. The other blade's going minus the airspeed. And so you end up with this you know, dissymmetry of lift, they call it, and, and that ends up limiting your forward speed. And so people are looking for how can we get around that limitation. And the tilt rotor is one answer, and the Uber market is coming up with a lot of other answers also. Yeah. And so, what? I mean, what's your opinion? Just wondering, do you think uh, in the next 10 years we'll start seeing these aircraft being flown by, by a service like Uber? I think it might be more than 10 years, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it happens in 10 years. And I think it's very interesting because they're they're really looking at completely automated vehicles. So I'm, <laughs> I want to meet the guy who's willing to climb in, <laughs> put an address into his telephone, and then sit there while this, this totally automated machine takes him there in, through the air. That would be very interesting. Yeah, we do rail, but that's a lot different. Uh, you know, it's, it, those are actually attached to the rails. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the things, though, as far as a test pilot's concerned and these tilt rotors, and I get this question all the time, I'm sure you do also, is in everything in life, there's challenges, uh, there's rewards. But I think the largest challenge in this is, I heard this from my mom when I got into aviation, is 
you know, don't you think it's kind of dangerous to do that? Why not just go out and work for an airline? Uh, talk to that. Talk to that. Actually, you know, the challenges as far as the safety of being a test pilot. Yeah, actually, um, we are very safe, and that's because we're so controlled. You know, we have this this aircraft that has over 2,000 parameters being measured. So we have strain gauges, we have accelerometers to measure vibrations, we have temperature gauges, and we have um, real-time telemetry. So we send about 200 or so of those um, parameters down to the ground, and we have a room full of engineers who know what they're doing on this particular aircraft, and they're watching those parameters and if anything is starting to act unusual, then the test director, who you know I'm talking to on the radio all the time, he lets me know. And uh, so I have I have incredible monitoring of the aircraft, much more so than a normal fleet aircraft, which has of course already been through all of that. But then also before we do a test, we we have all kinds of what we call we we have these flight test risk worksheets. And so we, we sit there and try to brainstorm ideas of what could go wrong. What are, the, what are the issues with this test that could go wrong? And then once we find an issue, we try to figure out what can we do to mitigate the risk? So, you know, we, we never go like into the great unknown immediately, right? We start with a known, we start in a known condition and we try to vary things just, you know, maybe one parameter at a time. And uh, so, you know, for instance, if you're just going to try and see how fast you can go, right, you don't just go out there and floor it and see how fast you can go. You go out there and you build up. You go 100 knots and you go 120 knots and then, you know, and, and you, you kind of build up towards that end point. And so in, in the long run, it's really quite safe and it's, 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 it's evolved a great deal over the, over the years. And there's been a lot of very smart people and a lot of people, like the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, are really dedicated to the exchange of information such that if, if I discover something or I learn something from a flight test program and I can help other people to avoid a mistake or I can help them to, to test something in a more efficient, safe way, then I go there and I present a paper and, and everyone watches and learns. And um, you know, the, the corporate, all the corporations have been very supportive of this, and uh, it's, it's really a great organization for that. And so I, I think it's really, overall, it's pretty safe. I think organizations like you said with the Society of Experimental Test Pilots and uh, all the different organizations that are involved in safety have benefited the entire industry and in safety and in everything. You know, I liked what you said. You're not bounding off into the unknown here. Actually, the, the actual role of a test pilot is much different than, say, what we imagine in our minds is strapping on, you know, a leather helmet with goggles and going out for the first time in an airplane that's never flown <laughs> that's <right>. before. <laughs> But, it, but yeah. it's a, a lot different than that. So I think people don't realize how many hours a test pilot actually doesn't fly. And, you know, maybe you could speak towards that. I mean, you don't, you're not in the air all the time. There's, I mean, compare the number of hours in the air as compared to the number on the hour, hours on the ground preparing for your flight. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. We do spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of time in meetings because when you're doing a test, you have what's called a test plan. Right, and that test plan has to be formulated. It has to be written. It has to be approved by higher authorities. In the case of a civil certification uh, program, it has to be approved by the FAA that you're getting the data that they want. 
Um, and the FAA also has safety oversight on the program. Um, so they're, you know, they want to make sure that, that you're being safe. You're not going to hurt yourselves or people on the ground. And, uh, yeah, so you spend a lot of time in meetings. You spend a lot of time reviewing documents, um, you know, looking for, for places that you can improve, whether it's the test efficiency or the safety. And uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know what the ratio is, but I'll tell you this. It's large. I mean, it's huge. <laughs> The number of hours you spend in meetings versus the number of hours you spend in the aircraft. So one of the things I think that people think about, you know, when they're thinking of, of test pilots is the fact that, you know, they're they're in this airplane and they have to have like many advanced degrees. They have to be like a, a rocket scientist, et cetera. But one of the things that I've realized after speaking to people and you can speak towards this is people do actually come to any, test pilot experimental test pilots come from all different backgrounds, don't they? They do, and especially in the military. I mean, you, you really have, there's a lot of paths to becoming a test pilot. There, there are a lot of um, young engineers who go to work for, for an airplane company, and they start off in the flight test department as flight test engineers. And that's a person who basically figures out how to collect the data or how to reduce the data, how to show what the, the gas mileage is, for instance, or how to show that the aircraft is stable. Um, and they'll, they end up flying in the aircraft. And in some of the companies, they could end up flying in the, in the co-pilot seat. And I know plenty of people who went and got a pilot's license, flew as co-pilots as flight test engineers, and eventually became corporate test pilots. Um, but they did have an engineering degree. In the military, the military kind of looks at your college transcripts when they are looking, considering you for test pilot school, but you don't really have to be an engineer in order to get in, in the military. What they really look for is experience. They want, they want their test pilots to be experienced pilots who know what the fleet needs and understand the mission. And uh, so they look at, you know, they look for that sort of thing as well as what your education is. So I mean, I don't have an engineering degree. I have a computer science degree, but I, I did take some calculus and physics and stuff in college, and so that helped. But I, I think the fact that I was an experienced military pilot had a big influence on my ability to get accepted in the test pilot school. So for those considering becoming a test pilot, you know, don't look at the degree you have right now and say, oh, this won't fit in because it could. I mean, if you are somebody that loves computer science and, and that's what you want to do, here's somebody who's done it. I mean, Dan, Dan has done it. So uh, there's many different degrees. But with that said, I think having like an, you know, some type of background in science or technology and math, that really does help towards this career. So those that are focused on that would help quite a bit. Uh, so and just like you said there, so I think if if someone is considering like right now they're not in college yet and they're looking at this just a whole bunch of different degrees out there, what are maybe some of the ones you might suggest to somebody younger that's thinking about becoming a test pilot in the future? Well, I think I mean if if you haven't got a college degree yet, I would say you know engineering is the way to go, and that's not just to become a test pilot, but I mean. You know, engineers, in this country, engineers are in demand all the time. And what, no matter what you be, want to become in later in life, you know, a degree in engineering, you're going, to be, you're going to be guaranteed employment. But not only that, it's a good challenge. I mean, you know, as an engineer, you work, you work hard, but you, you work in a challenging environment and you get to do things and create things. And, uh, 
you know, I, I think there's a lot of job satisfaction. I mean, my wife is an engineer and she loves her job. She loves to go to work every day and she always has. And uh, I, so if I was to recommend such to someone that uh, I would say engineering, if, if I it was the first choice, but if you're, if you're not so inclined to engineering, then I think almost any degree that you can get is a plus because it shows a that you can set out to do something and you can complete that something and uh you know b it's just going to broaden your horizons so it's uh you know any college degree is valuable so yeah i think that's an important point and uh, i love the fact that we're pushing people more towards stem programs science technology engineering and math uh, because those are so important in so many fields, and and it's a decent living. You can make a, a good living. I mean, look at you. You've you've actually been able to make a living all your life doing something that's really fun. I think that's terrific. One of the things I'd yeah, like. I, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say I, I do like to come to work every day. I will admit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is that's the other thing too is you get to actually play with some pretty cool toys. So I kind of want to shift gears here a little bit. This, this, what I'm calling a toy, the thing that you get to play with is, uh, is a really neat aircraft. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, the Augusta Westland, this is the AW609. It's a tilt rotor. It looks really cool. It actually, it looks like more like a rendering than a real aircraft, but it actually does fly. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the stats on it compared to like, say, a, another either helicopter or airplane, you know, how fast does it go? How, how high that type of thing? Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a nine-passenger, uh, two-pilot airplane. It's a pressurized cockpit. Um, it has two PT-6 engines, one on either uh, end of the on either wingtip there. And the PT-6s are they're the Dash 67s, and they are very powerful. Um, they produce about 1,940 horsepower continuously. And they can, if we lose one of those PT-6s, which is pretty far-fetched because they never fail, but if you were to lose one, the other one can produce 2,400 horsepower for uh, about 30 seconds. So if you were to lose an engine on takeoff, uh, it would be pretty much like an airliner. You're, you're pretty much guarantee a, a safe return. Um, so, but the two prop rotors are uh, interconnected. So if you lose one engine, both prop rotors continue to drive. And you might not have heard that word before, prop rotor, and that's what they call the, the propeller and rotor combination um, that we have. And it was at, that term was coined by the V-22 many years ago. We just kind of inherited it. Um, but the, the prop rotors are uh, they're, they're typical of a helicopter rotor system in the sense that we do have cyclic pitch. So if you push the stick forward, you tilt the tip path plane forward, but you can also move the nacelles forward. Um, and then once you get to airplane mode, then they act more like propellers. They don't, they don't uh, tilt and that sort of thing anymore. Um, we're a fly-by-wire aircraft, so we have three flight control computers, and we have three hydraulic systems. And, of course, with three flight control computers, I always say I'm just a voting member. <laughs> you know, so uh, <clears throat> I, I make an input, and the flight control computers decide what to do. And it's a, it's a very, very complicated flight control system that has been greatly simplified for me. So, you know, when I push the stick forward, the houses always get bigger. And when I pull the stick aft, the houses always get smaller, no matter what mode I'm in, whether I'm looking like a helicopter or flying like an airplane, my control inputs give me the same response. And that's, that's because the engineers did a really nice job on uh, designing the, the control laws of the airplane. <laughs> 
So one of the things you mentioned is fly by wire. I mean, that's something that I think people don't realize has been around for a long time. And I think some of the risks are if those computers fail. But uh, one of the things we we don't realize is there's so many backups, aren't there? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's and and that's why you have three computers. You always have three. Like if you look at any of the fly-by-wire airliners, they always have three computers. And the reason for that is if one of the computers starts coming up with, with wrong answers or different answers, the other two can basically vote that computer out. So if, if we had a computer that was starting to have problems, well, it wouldn't actually be able to take control of the airplane because it would be isolated from the other two computers. Um, and so the, the idea of having an odd number of computers is that you can have you can have someone get voted out. Um, and so and we also have three hydraulic systems and each computer runs one hydraulic system. So there's they're completely separate and independent in that regard. So if I lose a hydraulic system, well, I've still got two more and I've still got two more flight control computers that are going to be running those hydraulic systems. So, yeah, the level of redundancy is huge. And, and and there's multiple reasons for that too. So interesting. As so, do these uh, other computers are they able to jump in and say, "Hey, I'll run that other hydraulic system"? Say, not on our aircraft. On I think on the V twenty two they can do that. Um, I think on the V twenty two it's not quite as isolated as ours, but on ours they're they're pretty much uh, isolated. Interesting. One of the things I think we don't understand, like on a tilt rotor. And uh, I think a lot of us that's flown turboprops are thinking along these lines, and I'm sure you get this all the time, is, and you mentioned this, but we all think, you know, if we lose an engine, you know, the asymmetric thrust is really, we're not going to be able to control this aircraft. But I'm assuming that most tilt rotors are designed similarly to the, this aircraft? Yeah, that, that's correct. So there's a drive shaft that goes across the back of the wing, um, and it's just forward of the flaps. We, we call them flapperons because they're flaps and ailerons. But there's a drive shaft back there. It's about the size of a, of a Huey tail rotor drive shaft. So it's maybe three inches in diameter. And it turns at about 8,000 RPM. And it goes from the transmission on the left side all the way across to the transmission on the right side. And uh, there's a gearbox in the middle on top of the fuselage, and we use that to drive a generator and stuff like that. But, um, but that, that um, drive shaft ensures that if one engine fails, the other prop rotor continues to be driven. And, of course, that's important because when you're in VTOL mode, if you were to lose an engine and that prop rotor weren't, was no longer being driven, then you would just flip right over. Um, and so the way this is designed, if you lose an engine, well, both prop rotors continue to turn, they continue to produce thrust, and physically, there's actually no change in the aircraft. Like, if you lose an engine, it doesn't cause the aircraft to yaw or to roll or to pitch or anything. Um, you just lose power, a, a little bit of power, and, of course, if you're a light gross weight, the other engine takes over immediately. If you're at a heavier gross weight, then you might start to sink down towards the ground but there's ways of compensating for that also this aircraft flies at a higher altitude you said above the weather but one of the things sometimes oh i'm sure it has to do it has to go through the weather to get there i know there's some issues with helicopters and flying into say icing conditions 
compare like a, a regular helicopter to this tilt rotor and uh, the safety features that are there for flying into, say, known icing. Okay, yeah, we have we actually have both anti-ice and de-ice systems aboard, and we've actually done the the first stages of testing of those systems, and they worked they worked very nicely. So we. Uh, you notice on a lot of um, business class airplanes, you have these rubber boots along the leading edge, and those rubber boots inflate with air. You know, once you get you let the ice build up a little bit, and then you inflate the rubber boots, and it breaks the ice off the leading edge of your wing. Well, we have the same thing. We, our wings have rubber boots across the front, so when we're in airplane mode, if we get into ice, then we can break the ice off. Our rotor blades actually are heated, and so we have two kinds of heat on the rotor blades. We have a heat that's kind of a, a relatively low amperage, and it covers about half of the rotor blade span, um, the outer half. And you turn that on, you you turn that on when the temperature gets you know pretty cold, like maybe below zero, maybe even like uh, below minus four degrees, and it tries to kind of prevent the ice from building up. But then we also have heating pads that extend for the entire rotor blade um, span. And those pads heat up intermittently, and what they do is if, if you do have ice building up, they heat up enough that they shed that ice right off. And so when you're uh, in helicopter flight, if you're in icing, you can shed the ice through that system. If you're in airplane uh, mode, you can shed the ice on the wings through uh, the rubber boots. And then, of course, we have heated windshields and pe heated pitot tubes and all of that stuff. So um, we, we will be, an, once we're certified, it will be an all-weather aircraft, just like any business category, uh, uh, turboprop or jet. So, boy, I tell you, with all these safety features and uh, with the ability to fly 275 knots and up to 25,000 feet, get above the weather, land vertically, uh, I want to know, what, when can I get one? <laughs> well... We have the first few sold already, <laughs> but yeah, we're hoping to make our first deliveries in 2020, and uh, we're working furiously towards, I mean, we have to create our school. I mean, our company has a school for 139s and 119s here in the United States, here in Philadelphia, and we're working furious, furiously to create our school for the 609, so pilots will come here, and they'll get a transition into the 609. And, uh, you know, it'll be uh, just like going to a, a, any other transition course uh, at flight safety or anywhere like that. And, um, and then we're working with the FAA. We, you know, the FAA is, has, has realized that this is reality, that we are going to get certified. And so we're working closely with them in terms of what regulations need to be altered slightly and what you know, the licensing requirements for powered lift and that sort of thing. We, we have uh, people in advisory committees and that sort of thing to uh, work with the FAA in those areas. So there's a lot of work to be done, but hopefully in 2020, you'll see the first few tilt rotors get delivered and you'll start to see them operational. I got a feeling I'm not going to be able to afford it, though. Uh, so I don't know if we can talk about retail price. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, they don't, they don't clue me in on that sort of thing. <laughs> but but I can imagine it'll, it'll be expensive. So maybe maybe when I win the billion dollar lottery, possibly. But uh, yeah, you can always yeah. dream. You know, one of the things that uh, always amazes me in the field of of helicopters is things change names so often. 
And you actually, so this is, the company is Leonardo, uh, Augusta Westland. So what is that relationship there? And, and who is Leonardo, I guess, is really the question. Okay. Yeah. So Count Augusta, literally, I'm serious, Count Augusta founded Augusta back in the early 1900s. And they built airplanes and they built um, large airplanes and they're located in uh, headquartered in Cascina Costa, which is outside Milan, Italy. Beautiful, beautiful place up near the Swiss border, up near Lake Maggiore. Absolutely gorgeous. And uh, so he started building airplanes, and he and he built the company into a large airplane company. And then after World War II, because um, because of Mussolini and because they were on the wrong side of the war, he got told he couldn't build airplanes anymore. And so they built motorcycles for many years, and they actually won 23 world championships in road racing. And uh, then in the 50s, I think it was the 50s, they started building Bell 47s under license from Bell Helicopter. And then they started building some Sikorsky products, and they started building a number of different helicopters under license, American helicopters under license, and selling them around Europe and around the world. And um, so then they started, they, they learned enough about helicopters, they started designing their own, and then they built the Augusta 109, which you might be familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Augusta 109 is about the size of a Bell 206, a little bit bigger, but a Bell 206, it goes about 90 knots, and the Augusta 109 goes about 140 knots. And, uh, you know, it had retractable gear, it had two engines, and it's a gorgeous helicopter, and the thing just took off, and it really, it really made the company name. And then uh, they merged with Westland Helicopters, who uh, were located in Yeovil in uh, England. And Westland builds like the Lynx, if you're familiar with that. It's a military helicopter, um, and they they built a number of different a number of different helicopters. So the two companies merged and became Augusta Westland, and then. We got bought by a holding company called Finn Mechanica. And Finn Mechanica basically um, was kind of a, uh, an Italian shortened word for um, financial holding company of mechanical companies. <laughs> but, but Finn Mechanica actually held a lot of other companies that weren't, um, were not mechanical companies. They might have been electronics companies, that sort of thing. And so several years ago, they decided to change the name from Finn Mechanica to Leonardo and then change the names of all the companies that they owned to some version of Leonardo. So we are Leonardo Helicopter Division, and, uh, and Leonardo, is the, Leonardo Company is the big company. So that's that's a brief history there. <laughs> it's a fascinating history, and I bring it up because a lot of people don't know who Leonardo is, and it's not Leonardo DiCaprio, is it? Yeah, the, it's named after. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny being an Italian company. Of course, we have a number of employees named Leonardo. So. <laughs> All of them were quite honored by it, anyway. <laughs> But they are into everything, and I, I think this is something, just a hats off to Leonardo. It's amazing how they've grown over the many years. It, they're into helicopters, airplanes, aircraft structures, they, they're into naval defense systems, and they're into space, security, everything they're into. So uh, if you, I, you know what I'm going to do? I'll put a link to Leonardo Company in the show notes, because you really need to, to look at this. It's, a, it's just, a, just a really fascinating company, and uh, you know, my, my father's from Italy, so I'm very proud of the company, obviously, 
and it's uh, it's really a one of the things I like about it. It's so typical of an Italian company. It also looks good. <laughs> I'll tell you what I like about it is there's espresso machines all over the place. <laughs> Uh, well, that that is actually a real benefit of it, and we, uh, boy, you know, this has been awesome, Dan, having you on, and just you know, just a, a great personality and someone that obviously is is really passionate about what you're doing as far as flying is concerned. But going back to to some of the people that are interested, maybe they're starting their careers or they've already have a degree, et cetera. Some of the questions that come up are, you know, what should I do if I want to become a test pilot? And also, should I think about going into the military and, and doing it the way you did and going that route? Well, I certainly enjoyed it. I'll tell you what. I mean, the military, there's a lot of advantages to going and flying for the military. And, and the first advantage is the training. The training is really good. I mean, you spend a year, you spend roughly a year in flight school and you fly almost every single day of the year, you know, Monday through Friday. And uh, so you get really good training. You get training in complex airplanes or you get training in, in, you know, good quality helicopters. And uh, so it's, you know, the training is really good. And then, of course, the camaraderie is great. I mean, I have lifelong friends from the military. And, uh, you get to go and, you know, I lived in Europe. I did, I lived in Europe for nearly seven years, uh, flying helicopters, one tour over there and flying airplanes, another tour. So if you, you know, if you want to see the world, the military is the gate is a great way to go. Um, and then the military test pilot school, the air force has a test pilot school out at Edwards air force base, which you might remember from the movie, the right stuff. And, um, and the Navy has a test pilot school down at Patuxent river in uh, Maryland and both of them are in beautiful locations. Both schools are absolutely amazing in the amount of stuff that they teach you to do in the course of one year. And, and you get to fly a huge variety of aircraft. You get a huge variety of experience. Um, and that's by design because they, they don't want you to, to go into your next program and think that your next program has to be exactly like your fleet aircraft. They want you to go into it with an open mind and, and think of how you could improve it. Um, and so, yeah, the military is, is a great way to go. But if you want to be a, a civilian test pilot, um, I think that, you know, starting off in a, in a flight test engineering department of a manufacturer and, uh, and getting your pilot's license and, and working your way up, and it, it, it takes a long time. I mean, I was, in the, I was in the military for a long time before I went to test pilot school. I had a lot of great experiences. And if you do it with a civil company, it's going to be the same way. You're going to be in the flight test department for a long time before you get to that to that test pilot job, but it is possible to get there. I will say that in the rotary wing world, it's more difficult. Um, in the rotary, most of the rotary wing test pilots that I know are former military guys, and that's just because it's so expensive to fly helicopters. Um, but in the airplane world, there are tons of test pilots who um, are, were not military trained. They were just they just worked real hard and they and worked their way up through the flight test department, and that's how they got there. That's some great advice, I tell you. And this has been really wonderful having you on. And uh, your your passion for aviation and passion for what you do really comes out. I can tell in your voice you love what you do. And it, it seems like you get to go to work and 
play as opposed to just working, which is terrific. And I think that's really important. You're a great example to those people that are listening right now. So, Dan, hopefully if we do have questions, I'm sure we're going to get a lot. And, of course, people can write in at feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. I will forward them to you, and hopefully Dan will be able to help you out with that. Dan, we really appreciate you being here. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again in the near future. It was my pleasure. And, you know, if you're ever up in the Philadelphia area, I would love to put you in the simulator, and I would love to show you the aircraft. And uh, if you have students you want to bring, we can do that, too. Awesome. I may take you up on that. (laughs) Yes, sir. I definitely will take you up on that. And that's uh, something that I I think we'll do is, uh, you know, of course, Philadelphia is where I was born and uh, in the Naval Hospital there. And it's a it's a beautiful city. Yeah. Right there in in, uh, down in South Philly. But uh, definitely (laughs) love to see you there. But, you know, folks, I I, uh, just really appreciate your listening and also appreciate what Dan has done. A shout out, first of all, to the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Uh, and what they do through their scholarships, through the promotion of safety, even on the collegiate level. You know, I mentioned it in a podcast ago, you know, our flight team at the college level won their challenge award years ago in 2015. And that's what they're all about. They're, they're about promoting the industry, but promoting all sides of the industry through careers, just like Dan has done is in talking about how he really enjoys what he does and hopefully that shines through to you, but also in their ability to make this a safer industry. Hats off to them and also to Leonardo Company, uh, really through advancing aviation and sticking with it and growing and getting involved in these type of projects. We're going to have some really cool pictures on the podcast and the show notes, so make sure you check it out there at Aviation Careers Podcast. And one thing I want to do, and I always do this at the end of the show, but I want to make sure you, you really look at this. Make sure you do something today. Do something now to further your career and what that might be. And this is why I want to stretch your mind a little. Look into something that you think you may not have been able to do in the past, but maybe you can now. Maybe you thought that being a test pilot was well out of reach. Well, think about doing that and actually do some research. Look at the links on this website. Look at our links to Dan Wells and all the different things that he's done in his past and realize that it all just starts with a dream and starts with getting in an aircraft, going out, getting a degree, and there's so many different avenues that you can go within any field. So I want you to do that now. I want you to, if you're in your car, first of all, pull over. If you stop the car, if you're jogging, jot it down. Make a note to yourself that I want to research something that's going to stretch me and maybe look at a goal or a career than I never thought I could do before. Well, folks, it's been great speaking with Dan Wells. It's been great speaking with you. Safe flying. We'll talk to you next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler, all rights reserved.